This is Sean Sherman from The Sous Chef, and you're listening to Twisted Sister Podcast. Twisted Sister. Oh, dang it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. (laughs) That's funny. This is Sean Sherman from The Sous Chef, and you're listening to Toasted Sister Podcast. joining me today you're in albuquerque for the first time right yeah it's pretty awesome <laughs> right have you uh, uh, have you eaten anything interesting um i did go to the pueblo harvest cafe today and i met up with uh, chef david ruiz and um, got to have some lunch and that was pretty awesome all right what what all is sous chef about well, yeah we're kind of multi-tiered so i started the sous chef a few years back in 2014 but it had come from quite a few years of research of just trying to fill my own head up with what is indigenous food in general and what makes up an indigenous food system so with the sous chef we started in minneapolis and we started doing foods um, focused only on using only indigenous ingredients so cutting out all things that weren't here before so we're not using any dairy or wheat flour or processed sugar or beef or pork or chicken so doing native american food we're not making any fry bread you know you know we weren't doing the typical we were looking back in history and we're just like trying to use a lot of heirloom indigenous seed varietals working with local farmers um, native farmers who are growing out some of those pieces getting a really good knowledge of wild food and flavors to implement into a lot of that um, just understanding history and regional food. So we're really focused on the regional aspect of it because it, every area is so unique throughout North America. And we just wanted to showcase, like, there's so much we can learn from within and just looking backwards at how our ancestors were eating and what can we do with that knowledge kind of in the modern day. So we have a catering company built in Minneapolis. We started a food truck called Tatanka Truck with the Little Earth community in Minneapolis. And um, we're getting ready to open up our first restaurant. Um, So we've been working hard trying to get the building right and create a really unique restaurant place. And we're also working on opening up this nonprofit to really focus on indigenous culinary education and helping other food business development projects go. And when you say um, working with this space, what does that mean? As far as the restaurant goes? Yeah, the building? Yeah, so we've just been looking for a really unique space because the restaurant we're trying to build, um, we want to have an open kitchen and utilize all wood fire and just try to be as green as possible, you know, so stepping away from petroleum addiction as much as we can, utilizing solar energy and even cold air because where we are, we have a lot of cold air in the winter right. time, <laughs> and um, just making a really smart place, but we're also looking for a building that we can also create a, a learning and educational center attached to the restaurant itself so we can bring people in to learn about food and culinary and um, have a place to develop a lot of this indigenous culinary curriculum. Okay. Just inside of uh, the Minneapolis area, do you plan to branch out to other areas? Well, our focus with the nonprofit, the nonprofit's called natives.org, and it stands for North American Traditional Indigenous Food Systems. And our focus is two parts. The first part is the indigenous culinary education, where we just want to teach about the indigenous food systems and all the pieces we've broken out. So everything from native agriculture to permaculture and wild foods, wild food identification, um, food preservation techniques, cooking techniques, 
techniques, food history, regional history, um, and just applying like all of these pieces, you know, to the modern day so we can create an entire food business based on only indigenous knowledge. Um, and that's just the work that we've been continuously developing and we're still growing within, of course. Um, but having a place that we can teach that at. So the nonprofit is creating a center where we can teach this. And then the other part of it is developing food businesses that we want to help um, implement directly onto tribal areas. Mm -hmm. So we want to help open up small cafes for every tribal area around us and make little satellites that are connected to us. And we want to help um, them by having a place where we can train their managers and um, kind of so it's kind of like a franchise model in a sense but except we're not there for the profit we want them to keep their own profits and teach them how to you know um, go for profits and um, also the difference is that every single little restaurant is unique because every tribal area is unique and we want them each to have a special thing we just want them to have um, some of their own special traditional indigenous foods you know around and a place to have it a place that they can cater from um, an access point, you know, and some place that will help everybody in those communities, you know, get to know healthy indigenous foods and just have that place to do it. So the model for the nonprofit is to take that whole thing where we have a kind of a larger city restaurant indigenous training center and then satellites around it into the tribal areas and we want to move that whole system around so you can pick any big city you can pick albuquerque you can pick boston you can pick seattle phoenix mm -hmm. wherever you pick a big city you create a big restaurant training educational center and then you satellite out around them um, to the tribal areas directly in their region and that's how we want to kind of do the work that we're doing and spread out and create a lot of educational hubs and places for people to come and try food so so, you know, we're going to need a lot of partners and a lot of um, helpers, and which is why the nonprofit was a much better um, way to do that because restaurants are extremely tough businesses. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, connected to each other and being able to support each other, I think we can do it as a whole. And I think we need to be connected as indigenous people across the whole nation. Uh, sometimes when I think of uh, restaurants, especially in my little town, Crown Point, it seems like it can make a really big difference in the community. Um, and when we're talking about small communities, maybe a bigger difference? I mean, wh what do you see when, when um, uh, maybe this does come to light and there actually is a little cafe, say, in Pine Ridge sure. or Crown Point? Yeah, um, we feel like um, food businesses are something that can be really impactful for communities and for people to just understand food because, you know, food is something we all have in common. It's something that's extremely tangible. And to show people how to eat healthy, traditional foods, um, you know, whether the foods that they've been growing out for hundreds of years, if not thousands, and foods that they've been collecting and flavors and making a place where that's just an everyday occurrence. You know, I think it's going to be really important for communities to have a place that they can gather and they can do that. And, in, you know, there's other indigenous chefs across the country working on very similar restaurant concepts. Um, but we just feel like with a nonprofit status and being able to help these places with all the tools they need to open these units, that it's going to be impactful and it's going to create a kind of a micro, um, you know, micro economy of because they're going to be able to purchase from the indigenous vendors in their own community first and they're going to utilize the food that they've grown themselves and we can give them tools to help them, you know, if they want to grow their own community gardens and they don't have the systems there yet, we can help them with that or do even just redesign designing their, their community with permaculture design. So just putting food in everywhere there's an open space, basically.
basically. Mm-hmm. So instead of having giant lawns or just big open lots, like we can redesign that and just put food everywhere. So within a few years, you just have food pumping out from all over the place because you know, you're going to place plants that like to grow in that particular region. You, you mentioned that you don't have fry bread on the menu, and I know that's like a controversial uh, topic there. Um, what do you see trying to, you know, go in the middle of the res and say, no fry bread? You know, I think there's plenty of business opportunities for people that want to do fry bread businesses, but we just chose to do um, the healthier aspect of it. So we're not using any fryers for the work that we're doing. Since we're not using any European-influenced ingredients, we're not using any wheat flour, but we make, you know, other things, other breads. We use all, make all sorts of corn breads from different various you know, situations and stuff. But there's plenty of opportunity. Like, we don't hate fry bread. (laughs) It tastes good. We love it. But as our business model, we just chose that we need healthy food and we need healthy food education because the traditional foods, the best part about them is the health part. It's a low glycemic diet. It's got a lot of plant variation in it. Um, It's just, you know, there's so much knowledge that used to be passed down for all the different plants that we utilize for not only food, but for medicine and for crafting and everything else. Mm. Um, And just regaining in that knowledge and having a place for people to see it live in action today is something that we really need on our communities, you know, because it's such important knowledge that needs to continue to be passed down. Definitely. Um, You mentioned earlier that you were looking around Albuquerque and there was a couple of things in bloom. You know, you wanted to go out and, you know, start picking things. I mean, what things? I'm sure a lot of um, people are like, what do they find out there to eat? How can a forager, you know, make a meal out of some of these things that we just pass by every day? (laughs) What what, what, what sort of things just kind of caught your eye here? Um, so, uh, right. I mean, I've been in a very limited part of town so far, so I've been walking back and forth from my hotel to the Naka center and to the, the cultural center that's across the street there also. But, you know, it's just amazing. Like there's still a whole bunch of flowers, like all the lavenders in full bloom right now. And all of the, there's still uh, bloom blossoms on the yucca. And there's, uh, there's like where the hotel is, um, these are probably not indigenous pieces, but there's crab apples like falling all over the place. And there's even a pear tree that's coming in to ripe right there, which probably isn't necessarily from here but it's there right now so (laughs) (laughs) it's got fruit on it but yeah I just noticed that a lot of these desert plants at this moment in time still had a ton of stuff on them so I would love to go out especially with somebody who knows these plants because you know this area is completely different from where I'm at right now there's some similarities to growing up around the Pine Ridge because we had the Badlands right there and Mm -hmm. there's a lot of you know succulents and desert type plants around those regions too but you know I just love being in these places because it's new for me and I want to see when I want to understand and I want to taste. So I've just been like picking things off the ground constantly and tasting it to see. (laughs) (laughs) Well, stay away from near the road, of course. You know, I mean, oil soaked uh, crab apples or right pears or anything like that. Um, So, what, where, where are your food sources, or who's your food source up in uh, Minneapolis area? And are you getting foods from all around Indigenous America, or just you know that kind of? Well, the way we're trying to do it is just really set up uh, micro-regional economic systems. So, um, and so we prioritize all of our food purchases from the Indigenous vendors first. So we're pretty lucky around Minneapolis because there's quite a few pieces. So we've been buying a lot of wild rice from the White Earth Reservation. We buy a lot of um, fish from the Red Lake Reservation because they have the Red Lake fisheries up there. 
Um, there's two um, indigenous farmers right around us in Minneapolis that we purchase from a lot. Um, so we were able to buy a lot of heirloom species of plants that we have that they're that they're growing out. Mm-hmm. Um, so we just try to search out and find, you know, who are are there indigenous communities selling indigenous food pieces, and we prioritize those purchases and putting those pieces onto our menus first off. Um, and we see that being something that uh, most communities really need because a lot of these farmers and growers they need people like in restaurants to be able to process these foods and make them popular if people don't know how to utilize them um, and just you know have a hub that they can always sell to so we feel like having all of these indigenous food businesses that are going to be able to open up the doors for more economic opportunities in these small communities for just to have a purchase place too like you know they'll always be there to purchase your foods because the menus are designed to purchase directly from the indigenous vendors if they're growing you know indigenous foods or if they just want to go out and collect and sell, you know, some of the forage stuff too, you know, there's going to be a, a place for that also. So, you know, I think it's really important and because yeah, every area is unique, you know, so we're looking at North America as a whole from Mexico all the way up through Alaska and there's so much diversity in culture and food and religion and beliefs and you name it. Like it's just this patchwork of this awesome ver- um, diversification across the board. So we just want to do the best work we can and to create this nonprofit that brings in a lot of other smart people to help, you know, focus on this journey and this plan to just get indigenous food out there all over the place, basically. And just redefine North American food completely (laughs) because the way it should be, it should be rooted deep within its indigenous history. So you showed me the advanced copy of the cookbook. Um, wh- what's all in it? Just lots of recipes or some knowledge in there? Yep. So our cookbook's <laughs> coming out this year in October, and we've got um, quite a few little cookbook tours coming up to promote and talk about it. So we're going to be on the East Coast and the West Coast and around our area and we're um, even planning on, you know, breezing through here again when that happens. Um, but the cookbook itself, it's being published through the University of Minnesota Press, and it's called The Sioux Chef's Indigenous Kitchen. And it's really just kind of a, a very simplified look on the work that we do by just kind of going through, like, how we came up with the research and why we chose what we're doing and why we're doing what we're doing and a whole bunch of recipes showcasing the kind of work that we do. So it's really kind of open-sourced a lot of the work that we've done so far, showcasing... Um, uh, largely with ingredients from our region because we're showing how we've done it in our area but we talk about how people can really l- use the same model and do it in pretty much any area um, to really kind of bring out the indigenous you know foods back back into the mainstream um, and just bring that health back along with it basically so it shows a you know we're showing how to cook very simple foods with corns and beans and squash and wild foods and wild game and fish and we just kind of go through that and we even have some um, guest chef recipes that were included from different parts of North America to showcase that diversity and how the foods change from different regions to different regions and mm-hmm. you know I think it's going to be a fun book and we're looking forward to be able to u- being able to utilize that book as an educational tool so as we travel around and talk to people and we'll have this book for people to reference and in real time and take home and think and see how they can make some of their own recipes at home. Um, I know two episodes ago uh, we were talking about food appropriation. Um, are you maybe a little bit worried or did this ever cross your mind that putting all your recipes out there, people were going to get a hold of it and maybe run with it in a way that is just maybe appropriation or it's just not 
Not right. Well, knowledge is extremely powerful, of course, and education is very important, but we feel like we need this information and this knowledge out there, and mm. we're doing this for the indigenous communities, and you know, we're hoping to inspire other indigenous chefs, um, and we hope to create a space where people can come and learn and train with us and go back, and they don't have to be a part of our you know, situation and our, our work, they can, you know, hopefully create their own businesses. And I'm, I'm hoping to see a whole bunch of indigenous restaurants open up, you know, mm-hmm. over, over the next span of this next decade. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we just want to do whatever we can to help influence that and, you know, showcase people through the way we do it by trying to use only the indigenous ingredients and, you know, create recipes with just those pieces and, but create healthy and beautiful and tasty, you know, recipes out of those too. So we've, you know, I'm not too worried about if somebody wants to, you know, if a McDonald's is going to put on a, you know, Native American inspired <laughs> hamburger based on our work. I can't really control that. <laughs> I'm not trademarking these foods because these foods have been around for so long. We're just showcasing people our work and how we're doing it. And we're happy to be open sourced about it. When's the last time you ate at McDonald's? I couldn't even tell you. Like a <laughs> long time ago. <laughs> yeah. it, so what are some of the things you eat daily? I mean, it, it, sometimes when I talk to these chefs, I'm like, do they eat like that every day? And I see these beautiful things coming through your uh, Instagram and Facebook. Um, what do you eat? Well, you know, with our business, since we're always around it, we always have access to a lot of these great foods. Mm. So we do get to eat like that a lot. So if you do follow our Instagram or our Facebook, then we are around that food all the time. Mm-hmm. And at home, I feel like I'm at the co-op every single day because we have a, a really a few, quite a few nice co-ops around Minneapolis that just sell a lot of organic and local foods and stuff like that. So we're there all the time. And I love, you know, just cooking seasonally. So whatever is in season and when we have the opportunity to gather stuff like we just love being creative but you know I'm a chef I can cook a lot of other cultures too and Mm -hmm. you know we enjoy you know cooking whatever feels right at the moment so (laughs) just kind of cook with our passion of the moment yeah uh what cooking from other cultures what um maybe is one of your favorite or one that you've really um been paying attention to lately um, well, I really love yeah, I really love the foods from Mexico, of course. Um, I spent a lot of time down there. I lived down there for a while. And, you know, I love just going to the Mercado and just getting dried corns and chilies and making uh, fresh tortillas at home and things like that or fresh tamales. And so I love that. But, you know, I'm open. I, we make a lot of um, Asian um, soups, you know, we a lot of noodle soups with broth and all the different various pieces. Um, but, you know, it's kind of whatever we have a whimsical fancy for. Uh, being a chef, I can make it happen. I don't have to go out to a restaurant. I can just buy the ingredients and cook it if we feel like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you go to a restaurant, um, do you have a favorite in Minneapolis area or anywhere? Um, well, we definitely eat a lot of tacos. We definitely go out to, there's a lot of restaurants in Minneapolis. So we visit a lot of friends and see what kind of what they're doing at the time or just mm. to visit. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's kind of open. We just kind of go through, a, I guess, I don't go every someplace all the time, but we <laughs> have, I guess we have some of our favorites. So, but definitely a lot of Mexican, a lot of uh Vietnamese and uh, you know there's just there's a lot of great restaurants in Minneapolis because it's a really cross-cultured city because it's a city that bring brought in a lot of um, people from war-torn countries and 
places, refugees, people who are running. Um, so it's been, so we have a large Hmong population and a large Mexican population. Not that they're from war-torn, but you know what I mean? Like we just have yeah. a really varied, there's a lot of uh, Somali, there's a lot of Ethiopian. Um, and so we just have this really diverse kind of food scene in Minneapolis, which is kind of nice because we can learn from the other cultures and we can, you know, find some of their foods if we want to cook them at home. And, you know, it's just great to be in a really diverse area. It's important to uh, learn about other cultures, and one of the best ways to do that is through food. Um, how important do you think it is to throw our native um, uh, culinary knowledge into that mix with everybody else? I think it's really important, especially in America and Canada that have completely, for the most part, ignored the indigenous history and the mm. background of the land that they sit on right now today. So I feel like by having indigenous restaurants run by indigenous people, um, supporting indigenous communities is obviously something that's much needed across all over the place, right? So it's silly that we can go, like I'm in Minneapolis and I can walk around and find food from all over over the world within a few blocks. I can find German, Korean, Japanese, Afghanistan, whatever. Um, and But there's there was literally nothing representing the people that have lived here for thousands of right. years, right? <laughs> so um, I think it's really important to showcase that our culture is strong and resilience and that food is a sign of that resiliency by still having this, you know, to be able to serve it to people and to grow it and to have it, you know? So I think it's going to be really important to see indigenous restaurants pop up to celebrate indigenous knowledge and food and history and agriculture and wild foods and all of it, you know, right. just indigenous food systems in general. Uh, the sous chef, um, how did you come up with that name? Well, um, originally I had just used it for an email handle. So I had like <laughs> sous chef at AOL, sous chef at Hotmail. Yeah. So that's dating myself a little bit. But um, when I was coming up with the business and trying to decide what to call it, I didn't, it didn't occur to me right away because um, I knew I was going to open up something in Minneapolis. And I was trying to find a word that would be transfer between Dakota and Ojibwe because those are the two largest tribes right there. And I could not find like a word that really like crossed over well. And every time when I tried to use like a, an English name, it would sound like a yoga studio or something because it'd be like the grandmother's meeting place or I don't know. It just, you know, it didn't really work out. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, I've been using sous chef as an email handle. And the sous chef actually is a pun. It's a play on words. You know, the word sous actually doesn't mean anything particularly because it was, you know, what other uh, third party mixed with French were calling another group of people. So, <laughs> so you know, because we're a Lakota you know, or Oglala even, and, you know, so we don't call ourselves Sue. Yeah. But it was a pun, it's a play on words, and it just kind of fit. And it was, you know, something that's popped out, and, and it's just been kind of working on its own. But it was never designed to be a moniker for myself, so I never called myself the sous chef. People have called me the sous chef. Um, but really, it's just about the business that we started. So the sous chef is, you know, just this business that we're growing. But as we're moving into this nonprofit, you know, we're also going to have natives. And we also had the food truck to Tonka truck. Um, and you never know, there might be some more native business names that come out out of it. But, you know, I think marketing is really important because it's something that we need to do as businesses, too. Um, and, you know, we need to, you know, portray who we want to be as businesses. So. 
Um, as uh, Native people, I think sometimes we go through this phase where we're angry, <laughs> learning at, <laughs> learning about history and learning what really happened because most times we don't learn that in high school and it's not, um, you know, something we're, we're taught just automatically growing up. Um, when you were learning about all these different foods and I don't know where, um, you know, going to, you know, culinary school, you know, cooking with um, different people, when you were learning about about your own um, cultural foods, ancestral foods, like what what were your what some of your feelings? Was it like anger or? Yeah, you have to be angry when you um, you know really learn the history of how poorly the indigenous communities were treated and how much land and resources we lost, and for what you know people weren't even taking the good resources; they're just going for gold and for other stuff, you know, and things that really didn't even matter to the communities that much. And but trampling over a lot of land that was really valuable for us to grow foods and to collect foods on Um, and there's so many awful awful stories out there of how indigenous communities have been treated for every 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 indigenous community across you know from mexico all the way up through alaska we all share these really horrible stories of how we were treated by the government that we're in right now right Mm -hmm. so you do have to be angry but we do have to like try to reclaim the best of our knowledge from the past bring it into the modern day today because we as indigenous people have to evolve. You know, we have to be able to take the best of the past and the tools of the now and be able to utilize that for something. You know, we have to be able to grow because we kind of fell into a period where because of mass oppression and poverty and you name it, everything that we got put through pushed us down and and we weren't evolving anymore. We weren't growing, but we're at a point now where we're smarter. You know, we have all sorts of information at our fingertips. We can utilize a lot of our traditional ways and they're still extremely relevant for today. So we see the future being extremely bright for indigenous communities by holding on to that resilience, holding on to a little bit of that anger (laughs) and moving forward in a very positive fashion and having just, you know, a lot of self-worth about it. Like, you know, we need we need to know all of us that we're super important and our traditions are super important. Our food is super important. And this land that we're standing on will always be important. All right. Well, um, uh, how how long have you been a chef? Um, I started cooking um, about the right when I turned thirteen. So I started restaurants pretty young, just because we were poor, like most native families coming yeah. off the reservation. And I started working restaurants as soon as I could make some money. So I started at back back of the house pretty young and all through high school, all through college and then after college. And then once I moved to Minneapolis, um, I kind of shot my way through the ranks and became a chef within just a few short years because I'd already been cooking for a long time. So mm-hmm. um, it's been a long time. Uh, what what are what's maybe one uh, culinary mistake you've made? Like maybe one awful dish that um, uh, I think there's maybe you didn't even finish. I think there's plenty of mistakes <laughs> that cooks make all the time, and that's just one way that we learn, and it happens all the time. And sometimes you can control them and make them better, and sometimes you can't. Sometimes you make something awesome out of a mistake, and sometimes <laughs> it's just a really bad f up, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, uh, let me think. I remember one time um, we had a special. We were doing it was a Mediterranean restaurant, and we were cooking some seared tuna with some. It was like 90s, so balsamic glaze and 
um, some fresh vegetables, grilled stuff, blah, blah, blah. And it wasn't until the very end of the night that I'd realized the whole night through that we weren't using balsamic glaze. We were using chocolate sauce the entire time. (laughs) So we sold tuna with chocolate sauce on it all night for probably like 30 bucks a plate or something. Did anybody return it? (laughs) Nobody said a thing all night long. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. (laughs) Well, what would your advice be to young native chefs coming up through the ranks, um, aspiring, maybe they're still in high school? I'm saying push the limits, you know, don't be afraid to do something different. You know, look at really learn the history, you know, learn the traditions, you know, bring what you can out of that because those are important pieces. Um, Grow some of the traditional foods if you can. Learn about the wild plants. Don't call everything a weed if you don't know what it is. Learn the (laughs) names and the properties and the values of it. You know, like there's so much exciting stuff we can learn all across this whole country, you know. So Turtle Island is a pretty amazing place. And, you know, we hope that we even inspire people in South America to do some of the same work because they're just as valuable down there. And and so is the, the lessons that we can learn from some of their indigenous peoples also. So as indigenous peoples around the world, we really kind of have to come together to, you know, take the best of what we've learned in the past and the traditions and those thousands of years of traditions that had been passed down and then almost came to a screeching halt because of colonialism. But we're getting past that. We're the resilience. We're like, we're the generation, you know. Somebody said, be the be the answer to to your ancestors' prayers. You know, that's a really powerful statement because we need to do that. You know, we need to do something within this lifetime that matters, but we need to do something that's going to help the people we came from. Uh, where can we find uh, the sous chef? Um, you can, you know, look us up on our website. And, uh, it's www.sous-chef.com, and it's s-i-o-u-x-chef.com. Um, you can check out our upcoming nonprofit, which is going to be releasing extremely shortly, called natives.org, and it's n-a-t-i-f-s.org. Um, follow us on our social. We're all over Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all that stuff too. But or just reach out to us if you feel like it. <laughs> that wraps up another episode of toasted sister and thank you for listening to this 14th episode that was sean sherman oglala lakota chef and owner of the sous chef You can subscribe to Toasted Sister on iTunes, SoundCloud, Podcast Attic, and Stitcher. We'll see you next month.